Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Independent MP Zali Steggles, the member for Warringah, after convincingly knocking off Tony Abbott in May's federal election, climate change action was a significant issue in her campaign. And last week she announced a plan to introduce a climate change bill to the federal parliament early next year, modelled on Britain's Climate Change Act, which passed over a decade ago. Zali Steggles on the phone and thanks for joining us. Good morning. And um, tell us why do we need a Climate Change Act? Well, I think we do, because we can look at uh, the UK and many other countries, I think, around the world, where they are making more cohesive progress by having that legislative framework that sets the path. Um, We do have bits and pieces in the Australian legislation, but a lot of that was actually wound back by my predecessor, uh, ironically. Um, And what we do need is that framework to make sure all our sectors are tracking towards uh, a net zero 2050. And so, Zali, can you explain what exactly this proposed um, act would do if it is legislated through Parliament? Uh, yes. Well, the, the main aspect of the act, if I look at the UK, is it sets a framework across all your areas. So it basically sets up an independent climate uh, committee, which every year reports to, sets up a report to Parliament of how each sector is tracking. And now uh, the government then has a legislative duty to respond to the Parliament as to how it's meeting uh, the goals that have been set in time, and it's in carbon budget period. So essentially, as I say, uh, the UK Act does it in five-year purchase, and so for every five years, there's a goal across the different sectors, and how uh, it's, what, what's the plan in place, and how you're then achieving that. So there's an accountability. The, the main aspect uh, that we're really lacking is the accountability. We have some element of reporting, but it's not reporting to Parliament. It's not on the record in the same way, and it's not with that checks and balance of an, of an independent climate committee. And where I'm having a little bit of trouble with your line, so if you can move either side of where you are, Zali, that'd be really great. We've got Zali Steger with us um, speaking about a proposed climate change bill that she wants to enter into the Australian Parliament next year. And so where are you at with this bill? Is it drafted or is it something that you're currently working towards? Work, working on the drafting. Clearly, we have uh, drafting assistance here at the Parliament, but it's also about meeting with stakeholders to make sure it meets, uh, that we come up with the best, the best framework. Uh, I feel the UK one is actually uh, widely recognised as having provided that good framework. And you have to look at some of the other countries that have implemented comprehensive climate change acts. Uh, you have, you know, from France was in 2009, Sweden in 2017, the UK 2017. So you've got a number of countries that have moved in this direction. Um, What it allows is it's rather than getting bogged down in the detail of the how, it sets up a compulsion on government to come up with the plan and then that has to be presented to Parliament. So rather than at the moment where we have... um, I think fragmented policy and there's a lacking of transparency and accountability. Uh, we, we can see, you know, on either side, the, we have the government on one side saying we're going to 
uh, meet the 2030 targets easily. On the other side, we have the science community saying, don't agree, we're not doing enough. Um, I think it's really important to have that framework so we can have that clear discussion without the the partisan kind of football of of being about different political parties trying to win uh, or wedge the other side on an issue. I think if we can have everyone come to what the common goal is by 2050 and then work backwards on a plan and having uh, those five-year carbon um, budget periods uh, and really a reporting to Parliament the same way the Treasurer reports on the budget each year uh, and and any kind of policies have to be costed. Um, Our goals to decarbonise and adapt. The other part that's very important is I'm very focused on we need to actually know what the cost of adaptation to climate change is going to be across all the sectors of the Australian economy. Uh, We no doubt have to have the focus on climate you know, action in terms of decarbonising, but we are locked into a warmer climate, so we need to understand and prepare for the adaptation that will be required. And, I mean, as you say, Zali, there's there's a lot of efforts going into, you know, balancing the budget and there's a lot of talk of surplus, surpluses and that side of, side of things, but not a lot of conversations um, coming out of our elected politicians around how much um, climate change will cost in terms of mitigation and adaptation and so on. And it's refreshing in some ways to hear a parliamentarian talk about taking the partisanship out of climate policy of course you're an independent mp you have somewhat more freedom to to talk in those terms than others who are bound by kind of party conventions and that sort of thing how confident are you that you will be able to garner cross-party support for a bill of this nature Oh, well, look, it's going to take work. I look at the UK. Uh, it was introduced by a private member's bill in 2005. They managed to get, uh, I think it was 412 out of 646 members of the UK Parliament that uh, called for the introduction of a Climate uh, Change Act. So clearly we do need, I think it is time for a conscience vote on this issue, not just on the question of emergency, because a lot of people say if we pass a motion for a climate emergency, what does that mean? Well, to me, that's step one, but step two is the Climate Change Act, which is the doing. This is how we start to fix and address the problem. Um, And just being aware of the consequence, because um, a lot of people will always argue it's too expensive to do anything about climate change and you know, we're too, too small a player. What can we really do to, to have a meaningful impact? But the other side of the coin is it's going to have a huge impact on us. The adaptation cost is huge. Uh, I mean, there's estimates already of something just cl- um, natural disasters alone, so not even just everyday costs, you know, across health and education and industry, but natural disasters alone would be in the tune of 39 billion dollars by 2050 so we do need this factored into our planning and i think business and the community want to know the government is focused on that yeah and i think uh, i mean opinion polls and and the like have actually borne out what you said that that business and the community want certainty in this area certainly around energy and climate policy although this sounds like it's much broader than that looking right across the economy but we also already have the Climate Change Authority in place, which I think, despite the efforts of your um, Warringah predecessor to remove it, is still there. Um, and we next year know that our government has to present its next five-year plan or you know, long-term strategy in line with the Paris Agreement. Do, do we have time, um, Zali, to set up a whole, a whole new framework? And I suppose you could argue there's you know, no time to lose to do it, but how long would it take to, to put in place the kind of um, 
uh, framework that you're calling for? Well, I don't think it would take long at all. I think we'll be in a position to introduce a bill uh, by early next year uh, if we can have a cohesive approach to this in terms of collaboration by both major parties, by the government, in looking at actually coming up with solutions. The problem with the Climate Change Authority is it was pretty much gutted of authority by my predecessor. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, independently advise or uh, Parliament. It only reports if requested by the Minister. So clearly, if no request is made, uh, it doesn't end up really uh, informing the, the Australian people of how we're tracking. There's no compulsion to report to Parliament either um, by the government on how we're tracking and yet this is a, an issue that is going to impact every aspect of the Australian economy and I think Australian society and, and I think this is an absolute uh, an area where there, there needs to be uh, that uh, reporting mechanism and that independent reporting um, on how we're actually tracking so we can get away from the political spin of <laughs> we're doing a great job and won't the other side be terrible at this um, and actually just get an independent report giving us a, an assessment of where we're at regardless of who's claiming or alleging what. Zali Stiggles, our guest and where I'm, I know we're running out of time um, Zali but I wonder I mean you're part of a parliamentary friends of climate action group which I understand has um, several Liberals as part of it. Is this also part of trying to get um, agreement, I suppose, or a, a single goal across the Parliament? Or is this is that Friends of group kind of different in its focus? Oh, no, I think it's all part of the bigger picture. I think the crossbench is very focused on uh, this is an issue of national security. It's an issue of Australia's future. This needs to go beyond partisan politics and really we need to come together and find solutions. Uh, I think it's been... We've had 10, 15 years of damaging uh, political... You know, the wedging on this issue. This isn't about one party putting up a target and the other party saying, well, I'll, go, I'll one up you and go better. This is actually a situation where we need a cohesive plan on how we're going to address this. I mean, health is the number one issue that will be impacted by climate change, by warming climate. And yet, uh, I understand that when the, most of the medical bodies um, have written to the health minister on this issue, his response has been climate change and global warming is not a health issue. Yet all the evidence and scientific data indicates uh, from a health perspective a warming climate will have serious consequences. And we're speaking um, t today, Zali, just shortly after the Morrison government blocked a motion on uh, declaring a climate change emergency in federal parliament. You, I understand, tomorrow are uh, presenting an e-petition uh, for Australia to declare a climate change emergency with, I understand, over 370,000 signatures. And there have been uh, local governments around Australia that have kind of um, gone to this step and, and declared a climate change emergency. What are you hoping uh, might come from presenting this e-petition and I guess more broadly, what's to be gained from a climate change emergency being declared? Well, I, I see the, the motion. I, I seconded the motion in relation to a climate change emergency. I've presented it on behalf of the doctors as well, uh, the No Times for Games. I think it's a step one of acknowledging we have an issue we need to address rather than having some sectors still kind of try and claim that this is not something that is a, a, a major issue that we're facing. So I do see the climate emergency motion as a step one, and I think it's one where there really should be a conscience vote, where everyone should be free to represent their electorate. So I accept that there are some areas that may not overwhelmingly 
be concerned with climate change. But I do think this is a matter that goes beyond party politics and just as an issue of, secu- of national security, for example, um, I will be calling on uh, the government and co- well, coalition MPs to push for uh, a conscience vote so that we can actually have a true picture. You can't go to an election and tell your electorates, yes, yes, I hear your concern on climate change and I will do everything in my power, but then get to Parliament and put party politics above representing the views of your constituents. And um, just finally, should we have faith in this process, Zali? I mean, we've seen so many efforts in our parliament really for the last 20 years federally. And, and yes, we've got, you know, net zero commitments or ambitions in pretty much every state and territory now. Uh, I understand at the Commonwealth level, we don't have that in place. Can we trust this process? We're working towards that. <laughs> um, of course, I mean, we have local councils leading the way, we have businesses leading the way, uh, we have state governments leading the way. It's time the federal government uh, was also in step with the rest of the country. At the moment, we have this strange situation of being completely out of step. Uh, it, it really... I think it's extremely damaging uh, and and it needs to be rectified, which is why we will continue with the pressure uh, on this government to to come. um, I think to to, to reassure Australians, we need leadership on this. This is a major issue of our time, of the next 20, 30 years. There needs to be leadership uh, and that's what we're calling for. So the climate emergency motion is step one. This is not the solution. No one is pretending it's a solution. It is acknowledging that there is an issue that needs addressing and then you can look at something like a climate change bill which sets that framework. Uh, We need everyone to just come on board with this. It it will be too late um, down the road. Fragmented approaches don't create cohesive policy and provide security and, and stability for markets, especially when it comes to energy. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us this morning and um, we will watch with interest how that bill develops. Thanks, Ali. Thank you. Our independent MP, Ali Stegall, she's the member up there in Warringah in New South Wales. Um, she's the one who knocked off Tony Abbott in May's federal election. Climate change action was a significant issue for her campaign and um, I suppose you can say she's following through um, and she's planning to put up a climate change bill early next year and we'll see how she goes getting coalition MPs to line up behind it. In a month's time, on the 23rd of November, the people of Bougainville will be voting in an independence referendum. Uh, which, if successful, would mean that island of 300,000 people just east of Papua New Guinea will become one of the world's newest nations. Ben Bohane uh, has been to Bougainville many times, including during the years of the blockade, and has penned a fascinating article in the latest Australian Foreign Affairs magazine, which puts the vote in its context. He's a Vanuatu-based photojournalist, uh, producer and policy analyst, and it's great to have you on Triple R, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me. And we've got a bit of time to have a chat with you, and I wonder if you could um, start by sort of sketching for us the Australian Bougainville relationship and I suppose why you see it's important that the Australian government is seen to be neutral during this upcoming independence vote. Right. Well, look, the first thing is, yes, Australia and Bougainville have a long and complicated history, going back to sort of the turn of the uh, 20th century. Um one of the very first actions of the Australian army as a national army was to take German New Guinea at the start of World War I. Uh, so even before Gallipoli, you had um, the first Australian 
force go into German New Guinea, Rabaul, uh, and Bougainville, and basically bring that into an administration run by Australia. Uh, so pretty much from about 1914 until Papua New Guinea's independence in 1975, Bougainville was administered by Australia. Um, so there were generations of Australian patrol officers, administrators, missionaries, traders, uh, working and base, basing themselves there. Um, things started to get complicated in the 60s with the mine um, and a growing sense of Bougainville nationalism. Ethnographically, Bougainvilleans sort of feel themselves to be closer to the Solomon Islands than Papua New Guinea. If you look at their sort of pre-contact history, um, they pretty much looked east to the Solomons, to the Western Solomon Islands, rather than west to the mainland of PNG. They do have sort of old stories about um, voyaging around to some of the other islands in that in that neighbourhood. But um, essentially, it was you know they were much much closer to to the Solomons. So when Australia included Bougainville as part of Papua New Guinea, there were issues that lay dormant for some time and then bubbled up to the surface just before independence. Two weeks before independence in 1975, Bougainville declared independence, hoping to preempt rule from Port Moresby. Uh, so that was squashed. You had Australian riot police uh, and others involved in the suppression of the independence movement right back in the, in the early 70s. And then... You know, they stayed part of Papua New Guinea. You had the Panguna mine operate there for many, many years. And eventually things bubbled up again. And by the late sort of 1980s, 87 in particular, um, it had reached a, a sort of breaking point, And that's when the war started. So, you know, there's a long arc of sort of 60, 70 years there of Australian involvement. Um, after the war, after the 10-year war, which claimed you know, anywhere between 10 and 20,000 lives, and was sometimes referred to as, as Australia's secret war because Australia was supporting, providing training and equipment to the PNGDF. Um, New Zealand stepped in and brokered a truce, and then Australia and New Zealand organised a, a sort of regional peacekeeping mission that helped uh, Bougainville go through a very long period of, of reconciliation uh, until we sort of come to today. And so now we're about a month away from a referendum where the people of Bougainville will be able to vote whether to remain in a sort of autonomous state within the state of Papua New Guinea or whether to vote for independence and potentially become the next new country in our region. And you, you begin your article, Ben, by recalling uh, being in Bougainville in the midst of that uh, bloody conflict in 1994 and, and speaking with Francis Ona, the rebel leader, and him saying to you that Bougainville was at war with Australia, but that was not at all um, you know, the, the intention of the people in Bougainville or those rebel fighters. Do you have a sense of the way in which Australia's involvement at that time, and I guess going further back, is uh, experienced or, or um, articulated by the people of Bougainville? What's their sense of the relationship and, and the way Australia has acted in the past? Yes, look, as I said sort of right at the start, there's, it's a complicated history and uh, Australia has to recognise that since that war began in, in the late 80s and even before when, when the Australian colonial government 
pretty much uh, backed this Panguna copper and gold mine against the local wishes of, of, of the primary landowners there. A very important thing to remember when it comes to Bougainville is that it's a matrilineal society. So it's women who own the land, not men. And of course, the mining company, when it went in there in the 60s, um, did all its negotiation with men, assuming they were the traditional landowners. So right from the beginning, they either didn't do their own anthropology or they got the anthropology wrong or they just ignored it. But essentially, you had women pulling out marking pegs and um, opposing the bulldozers back in the 60s, sort of long long before it became fashionable in the West. <laughs> and, uh, and so a real kind of opposition to this Australian administration and... Uh, the mine, which um, was being run by Bougainville Copper Limited, subsidiary of CRA, based there in Melbourne. Um, so, you know, over a period of time, this sort of opposition built up, both to the mine and to, to the Australian colonial uh, administration there. And it got to the point where they just felt it was past, um, past repair, really, in the sense that they, they really felt they needed to take on... Uh, a sense of nationhood themselves and control their resources. So when I was there during the war, Francis Oma said to me, for instance, you know, we've been ruled by five colonial or four colonial powers over the course of 100 years, the first being German, because it was the Germans who who initially occupied Bougainville and set up a whole range of, of coconut plantations. So, you know, you had the Germans, the Australians, you had the Japanese there who briefly occupied Bougainville during the war years, and then it was back to Australia again, and then it was Papua New Guinea. So from their their point of view, they've, they've had four powers basically ruling them, and they'd got to the point where they wanted to rule themselves. Uh, and that, that conviction has remained pretty strong, uh, at least since the 1970s and 80s. And now there's the the vote that's scheduled, um, as we've been speaking about the independence vote on the 23rd of November. Uh, you've been there recently. What's the feeling in the lead up to this vote? Yeah, I was there sort of earlier in the year just to, to gauge sentiment uh, of how the vote might likely go. And what struck me was the overwhelming sort of sentiment that they were going to vote for independence. Uh, in fact, it was quite hard to find people who were interested to remain uh, with Papua New Guinea. And so I, I really had the sense, uh, which has sort of been borne out by other reports as well, that I think we need to anticipate that there's going to be a, a fairly overwhelming vote for independence there. The process at that point becomes that the, the vote has to be ratified by the PNG Parliament and there has to be a negotiated outcome um, done between the governments of Papua New Guinea and the autonomous government Bougainville, the ABG. And that will be the ultimate sort of decider of of what happens to Bougainville. So in some ways, Papua New Guinea still has a sort of veto power, if you like, but it's going to be very... It's going to be hard for PNG and Australia to go against what is expected to be a, a majority vote for independence. 
We're speaking with journalist Ben Bohane all about his article in the current edition of Australian Foreign, Foreign Affairs on the upcoming independence referendum to be held in Bougainville next, or to be held in relation to Bougainville next month. And I mean, uh, Peter O'Neill, the former Prime Minister in Papua New Guinea, has been criticised in some circles for um, kind of you know, delaying the referendum and stressing kind of united PNG and that sort of thing. There's, of course, a new Prime Minister, James Marape. Do we have a sense of whether his approach to Bougainville is any different and, and might be more uh, willing, I guess, to uh, you know, formally accept the, an affirmative vote if it turns out that way? Yes. Look, there's certainly been a little a sense of optimism with Marape uh, since he came to power. Um, I think there was a real sentiment that under the O'Neill government, <clears throat> Papua New Guinea was... was definitely going to make things a little bit more difficult for Bougainville. They may have tried to stretch out the process and there were real questions about whether Peter O'Neill's government would be ratifying the vote in Parliament or encouraging the rest of the PNG Parliament to to adhere to the peace process and allow uh, for Bougainville to break away. So I think with Marape in, the Bougainvillians feel slightly more optimistic in the sense that he sent some early signals that he was going to follow the peace process and, and respect the outcome. Um, and perhaps as a signal he, towards that end, he released funds for the Bougainville referendum pretty much in his first week of government. And this had been a long sticking point with the autonomous government Bougainville, which you know, for at least a year or two had been criticising the PNG government for not releasing funds. And it meant that the Bougainville government was having to go cap in hand, essentially to the United Nations, to Australia, Japan, some of the regional countries, in order to make sure they had the financing in place to conduct the referendum. Uh, so that, that's been seen as a pretty good indicator of, of Marape's intent to follow the peace process. Of course, it's still unknown. We don't know exactly how Marape is going to... Uh, feel once that vote becomes apparent, once the outcome of the vote becomes apparent. But um, there's certainly a little bit more goodwill among the Bougainvillians towards the PNG government at this point. Yeah, and you're right that um, it's not just a, a domestic issue for Papua New Guinea, but a regional and an international issue. The United Nations has an office there, uh, and also um, China and Indonesia are watching this with... Uh, probably just as much interest as as we are in Australia. Um, kind of put it in in its sort of regional and international context for us. I mean, if if Bougainville does become independent, how how are we like likely to see China and, and Indonesia respond? Mm. Well, China and Indonesia are both looking at this, but um, from very different vantage points. Um, I'll start with Indonesia, and I think the thing that we need to keep in mind with Indonesia is its incredible sensitivity towards West Papua. Uh, and their concern, I think, is, is that an independent Bougainville, which emerges from a free and fair referendum um, conducted among, you know, among Pacific Island countries with Australia involved, may set a legal precedent in the region, um, sort of as East Timor did, um, for, for the West Papuans, who are also uh, asking for a, for a referendum, or I should say demanding a referendum. We're looking at 
probably the biggest uprising in 50 years going on in, underway now in, in West Papua and a real, really sort of desperate struggle going on there. Um, so from an Indonesian viewpoint, they're concerned that the rest of the Pacific is, is building its solidarity with West Papua and the idea of an independent Bougainville, um, again, just creates another model for how something like West Papua could eventually um, emerge. And so the Indonesians will have some concerns about that, but um, I'm not sure there's a great deal they can do uh, other than watch on. Under the O'Neill government, there was a sense that Indonesia had a bit more leverage, certainly with, with PNG's former prime, uh, foreign minister, Rimbik Pato, who was widely seen as being, um, shall we say, very cooperative with Indonesia on a range of issues, including including West Papua. So having Rimbik Pato and, and, and former Prime Minister O'Neill out of the way means that Indonesia perhaps has lost its leverage in this in this particular situation. Uh, and Marape and his foreign minister seem intent on, on, on allowing the process to unfold with Bougainville. Uh, so Indonesia may not have much of a much of um, an ability to do anything about the Bougainville referendum at this point. Um, now in terms of China, yes, when I was there earlier in the year I heard about a delegation that had turned up there of 10 Chinese, and they're looking at investments in mining, agriculture, and tourism. And they were prepared to, to stump up a fairly sizable fund, which would also go not just towards potential infrastructure there, but for a transition, what they described as a as a transition for the Bougainville government. So I think, you know, where where Indonesia would have concerns about, an, about a, a Bougainville independent uh, state, China has pretty clearly signalled that it is open to, to an independent Bougainville state and wants to get in there pretty quickly to you know look at a range of commercial ventures. But I suspect also they're looking for um, perhaps even some, some sort of strategic leverage there as well. They, they'll be aware that the Bougainville in Australia have a very sort of complicated history and they may think that there's you know, there's a, an opportunity for China to have some influence on the ground there, and part of that will be to recognise an independent Bougainville if and when that happens. Um, yeah. But also the fact that they may be interested in, in heading off any Taiwanese approaches to Bougainville, because, of course, we've got you know, an ongoing struggle between Taiwan and China for, for recognition among Pacific Island countries and, and the rest of the world. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to watch, Ben. And I mean, we know that the referendum is just one step, a very significant step, but just one nonetheless in Bougainville achieving independence and, you know, being fully autonomous as, as a government in its own right and so on. Logistically, what happens next? If the vote comes out in the affirmative and let's say that the PNG government then ratifies Bougainville's independence, then what? Right. So, I mean, if PNG does end up ratifying the vote and the negotiated outcome between the two governments, <clears throat> then I think there's going to be a need to look at what a sort of transition to independence looks like. And that's something that's being talked about now. Uh, but until the actual vote and, and that outcome is, is made apparent, I think there's a, a sort of sensitivity not to be seen to be getting too ahead of the process. When I was on the ground, people were asking me about, um, you know, potential models, and there was discussion around, for instance, East Timor, and how Timor um, 
was administered by the United Nations, basically from the liberation, which was 1999, up until Timor's full independence, which happened in 2002. So potentially there's there's a role for the United Nations to play in providing a, a sort of two to three administra- uh, two to three year administration of Bougainville until there's a feeling that there's enough of sort of government infrastructure in place and some sort of civil service in place um, so that it could make that final transition to full independence. Um, and, and part of that is the debate, is a debate going on in Bougainville itself, uh, you know, in terms of what, how long that transition period will be. And I would think that the autonomous government Bougainville will be mindful that, you know, There'll be some pragmatists suggesting that they probably need a good sort of two, three, even five-year transition period. Um, And then you may have some other sort of hardliners and those who are very keen to see independence much sooner than later arguing for a much shorter transition. So that's likely to be the sorts of discussions that are are happening now among uh, various policymakers in Bougainville and and, and in the region about, you know, what, what... a transition is going to look like if and when the PNG Parliament does ratify the vote. Really interesting stuff, and I suppose we'll watch with interest Australia's um, reaction and, and response to what's happening in, in Bougainville as well, and it's really um, been great to speak with you, Ben, and if you want to read Ben's article, it's in the latest Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. Ben Bohane's a Vanuatu-based photojournalist, producer and policy analyst with a long-standing uh, interest in, in covering um, uh, Bougainville and has been there many times, and it's yeah, been really great to have you on Triple R. Thanks. Thanks heaps. My pleasure. All the best, guys. Thanks. The Turkish government's incursions in northeast Syria have led many to ponder what this new round of violence will mean for dynamics in the region and particularly whether it will lead to a resurgence of Islamic State. The area has for some time been held by the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces until recently with the backing of the United States and has housed a combination of ISIS detainees and refugees seeking to flee the conflict in makeshift camps. One of these, the Al Hall camp, has contained dozens of Australian women and children, as well as a host of other associates of suspected ISIS fighters. Here in Australia, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton has ruled out helping these women, labelling them a security threat. But amid all the posturing by political leaders and media hyperbole, there's scant attention paid to the specific circumstances that have led people, particularly women, from various parts of the world into this violent conflict. Journalist, author and academic Azade Moavani has produced an incredibly timely and, I'd say, essential book that offers a nuanced corrective to much of the overly simplistic and ideological thinking around the pull factors of Islamic extremism. Titled Guest House for Young Widows, Among the Women of ISIS, it follows the plight of 13 women in different parts of the world as they become allured by and embroiled in the activities of Islamic State. Azadeh has been reporting on conflicts in the Middle East for over two decades and has a number of books to her name. And to talk about this latest work, she joins me today via Skype. Azadeh, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thanks for having me. And so my first question is a a simple one. Why are these women's stories worth telling? Partly because we became transfixed by by ISIS as a kind kind of grotesque and horrible kind of new development um, in the Middle East and as kind of the new face of terrorism, Um, especially in Europe. uh, Many cities suffered, you know, multiple mass casualty attacks, uh, countries like Turkey, Tunisia, um, as far afield as Russia um, 
and and you know affiliates of ISIS you know around the world. So I think it's you know of of kind of crucial importance to understand how this this kind of phenomenon has come about. We haven't really had jihadist terrorism operate on a scale like ISIS before, and at the same time, you know, it's part of the story of. The, you know, the next chapter of instability of the Middle East, um, as transfixed as we were by the Arab Spring and what potential that had for bringing better governance and hope to much of the region. You know, we have to see ISIS as kind of the dark next chapter. Um, and of course, you know, it is a region that's so turbulent, but of massive geostrategic importance to the world. Uh, so I think I would say on every level, you know, our security in the West, uh, the security of the Middle East, and, and also just as a human story. I mean, why did this group that, you know, at the core, you know, was so cruel, how did it draw so many women? I think, you know, we have to be curious and, and try and understand how it all happened in part to, you know, hopefully prevent it happening again. And it is a human story, but as you write in your book, so much of the coverage of the rise of Islamic State and, and violence in the Middle East is really dehumanised. It's often painted, particularly in this in, in the West, as this kind of mass um, uh, sort of evil movement that we, um, you know, should categorically reject, which given the violence associated with that has substance. But why is it, do you think, that we have failed to identify and tell the human stories of why particularly women have become attracted to Islamic State? I mean, I think there are a couple reasons. I mean, partly, uh, um, you know, the media and especially, you know, media that's quite sensationalistic minded or tabloid, you know, reaches for easy explanations. And it also reaches for explanations that kind of exculpate, you know, a lot of the reasons that we understand to be part of the history of the rise of ISIS. I mean, I'm talking here about the 2003 invasion of Iraq and mm. the kind of years of instability and violence that, that that brought for that country. You know, we we trace ISIS back to all of these things. Um, but it is really an enormously complicated story that does implicate, you know, much of, of, of Western governments too. Um, and it's easier to reduce it to a problem of ideology and really kind of a problem of religion at its core. Um, so I think, you know, that's been part of, part of the way that states have also dealt have part, part of the way states have dealt with uh, policing counterterrorism is to dehumanize the problem and and I can kind of understand that um, but at the same time you know if we want to see how this genuinely originated why did this happen you know we have to go beyond that kind of very lazy and and I would argue destructive theory of ISIS is just a kind of religious problem and and look at all of the social and political kind of context to its rise. And that takes us to the stories of particular countries, as I said, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring and understanding um, the histories in particular of, of Syria and Iraq and, and why why they gave rise to something so violent. And what about the history of women's militancy in the Middle East? Because you write about the depiction of, of particular women throughout the kind of second half of the 20th century as being seen as, as freedom fighters, as, as activists who were kind of leading, uh, you know, decolonization movements and so on, and write that nowadays um, such women would, would very much be deemed as terrorists. In what way has women's involvement in conflict in the Middle East, I, I guess, changed over the past, um, you know, 30, 40 years or so? And what's the nature of, of women's involvement in the current conflict in Syria associated with Islamic State? Well, I think in the 60s and 70s, you know, when we saw the rise of post-colonial 
really fiercely nationalistic movements across the Middle East. A lot of those movements were secular, they were leftist, uh, the women who participated in them were very liberal-minded in some cases. You know, they looked the part, they didn't cover their hair, they were quite beautiful and striking, and we did call them freedom fighters, and partly because, you know, I think that in the West, well, one, there was kind of a sympathy for that kind of that kind of struggle, political struggle for freedom against, you know, what was deemed, you know, post-colonial injustice. Mm. And also because um, I think that they weren't threatening. They were liberal. They were lipstick. You know, they kind of looked like us. Um, you know, all of that took, you know, the, the, the nature of political movements in the Middle East changed in the late. 20th century. A lot of those secular, leftist, nationalist movements were fiercely repressed. They didn't achieve change. Um, and often governments, you know, repressed them brutally and kind of cultivated Islamist movements as as a as the opposing force to them. So in the 80s, 90s, you know, the the invasion of Afghanistan and the war there uh, gave rise to much more religious infused um movements that kind of took the place of these. Um, I mean, I think to understand the the kind of, you know, fast forwarding all the way to 2013, 2014, we have to really see the rise of ISIS and the role of women's involvement in it, however, in the context of the Arab Spring and why it didn't produce the change that it, it promised. You know, women were very much at the forefront of those Arab Spring up uprisings. We saw them in Tahrir Square in Egypt. They were kind of leading the men almost. They were incredibly violent, vibrant and key to those protests. But country to country, from Egypt to Bahrain to Syria, they were fiercely repressed. And in some cases, Western governments didn't back the protesters. They felt more secure with the secular autocrats that were in power. Um, And in that kind of dark moment of disappointment, when a lot of the women, um, you know, who had hoped to have more role in politics and civil society through these movements, um, it became a very ripe moment for ISIS to to come in. You know, ISIS very uh, presciently saw the female, the untapped female energy across these societies. And I think it made a point. It was the first jihadist group that marketed itself to women. It sought to offer women, you know, full-scale membership. And it did something that the stuffy, you know, al-Qaeda's of the past hadn't done, which was just to relegate women to, you know, making babies and raising the next generation of jihadists. So I think, you know, as, as, as kind of complicated as it might sound, we have to look at its rise and the involvement of women through the kind of recent history of the Arab Spring and all the frustrations and desires it revealed within women across these societies and then how ISIS tapped into that when its moment came. Mm. I'm speaking with Azadeh Moavani, journalist and author, all about her brand new book, Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. And I mean, your book is in some ways a history of, of uh, conflict in the Middle East and provides really um, helpful kind of anecdotes about uh, large, uh, significant events that were happening over that time. But ultimately, it's it's, uh, it's, it's a book that tells the stories of 13 women. They're very personal stories of becoming allured by Islamic State and, and in most cases, travelling to Syria or, or aligning with Islamic State and, and participating in some ways in their plight. Um, 
And the experience of Noah, who starts your book very much, uh, I guess, um, speaks to that promise of the uh, the Arab Spring and how that didn't ultimately, um, you know, deliver the types of change that, that many people wanted in that time. Can you talk through the experience of Noor and, and her uh, trajectory, I guess, um, in uh, Tunisia before the Arab Spring and then later on? Of course, of course. Um, Noor grew up, uh, as, as you describe, um, in the Tunisia before its 2011 revolution. So Tunisia was an extremely dictatorial, repressive uh, country at, at that time or, or in that era. It was nominally a secular dictatorship, which meant that really uh, the state used religion at micro-policed people's piety. It was extremely repressive. Uh, there was very little space for politics um, and in, in the name of kind of state authority, uh, there was an almost complete ban on uh, symbols of visible religion and public life. So Noor, when she was 13, like many Tunisians, you know, quite traditional and, and religious, wanted to cover her hair and went to school one day, went to high school when she was 13, uh, wearing a headscarf and a face veil. Because she was trying it out. She was, I think, experimenting with, with piety. I think she was rebellious uh, and she was slapped by her teacher. She was thrown out of school. Uh, she was suspended for 10 days. Um, in the end, you know, she felt as though she had to make a choice between education and her faith. And she became a high school dropout. Uh, when the Tunisian uprising of 2011 led to a whole transformation in, in Tunisia, this kind of space, suddenly there was a great deal of political freedom. It was very freewheeling. There was space for all sorts of strains of politics that had never been permitted before. And Noor became a religious activist and part of a young generation of women who felt that suddenly there was space for their kind of uh, quite conservative and religious, but very much engaged and and kind of in, in its own very conservative way, feminist kind of wish to engage mm. in public. Um, there was a crackdown eventually on all of this kind of new religious activism. There was certainly uh, a strain of it that was radical like nor and a strain of it that kind of veered towards violence uh, but without going you know too much into the micro details of this tunisian story um that whole religious movement was shut down and and young women like nor who felt like they had finally been given a chance finally there was space for them uh, in this new tunisia felt really betrayed uh and her husband went off to syria to fight um it felt like there was no space for political Islam anymore in Tunisia. It felt like things had reverted back to the old regime. And Noor thought that she wanted to go with, with her husband, that maybe there there would be a society where she could uh, dress piously and, and participate socially uh, in some sort of utopian new, new society that ISIS promised and pretended to be building. Um, and that's the path that she went down. And that's an, an important thing to note, I think, that it was, um, you know, in, in the early phase, a promise of this kind of pure strain of Islam, of, of a caliphate that drew many people to the Islamic State cause. Of course, many people watching sort of Western news and so on saw the abhorrent acts that ISIS was committing. For these women, and I know you make a lot of effort to not essentialise the experiences of these women because they are all very particular, but what was their experience when they ultimately arrived and experienced the Islamic State for what it was in Syria? There were a few who initially were matched with husbands that that they loved, uh, that they felt were, you know, felt 
it was a genuine marriage. Um, I think for some, there was a very short period where it felt like this experiment in, you know, a new, you know, very religious state uh, seemed viable. Uh, but it very quickly descended into into terrible violence and, and became a cruel imposition for women, Um very often, nearly all men were sent to fight, and very often they died. And so when women became widowed, uh, they were expected to remarry almost immediately. And they were sent to these guest houses, uh, which, you know, from which the book takes its title, that were very, you know, deliberately uninhabitable, terrible places. They were crowded, they were abusive, uh, to kind of compel women to, to marry again. Um, so I think, you know, for nearly all of the women that I spoke to, uh, you know, de- with with a slight degree of variance, it quickly became, you know, an utter nightmare. Um, some remained kind of ideological, but I think most of them saw that the promises and, and all of the, the kind of pledges of the kind of life of dignity and equality they were meant to live there had just been, just been that. They had been pretext to lure women into what was essentially, you know, a Syrian, Iraqi, um, territorially voracious, voracious militant group. Mm. And it's a it's a really interesting thing you've done in this book, and, and I suppose it's something you've done for, for much of your career in, in understanding the pull factors of these violent conflicts and why people become involved in them in the first place, which is, you know, a very important thing to do. But you write in your book that there's a perception that um, sort of building an understanding of why someone would become involved in ISIS becomes dangerously close to sympathising. Have you experienced any backlash or or criticisms along those lines that we shouldn't seek to understand what these people have done because it is uh, essentially evil? Um, To be honest with you, very little um, or very little has made its way to me. Um, I mean, there's there's some quarters of the British media that have been a bit sneering. Um, They, of course, are confronting this you know, on, on a fairly significant scale, I think a bit more um, the numbers of, of British women who are still stuck in these ISIS camps in in Syria are more than than you have in Australia. Um, but I think as as more and more journalists go to that area and more reports surface of the conditions in which you know very young and you know I think we must acknowledge the children, innocent children, mm. um, the children of these women are are you know kind of being abandoned you know they're western citizens um you know i think that the the image of you know abandoned orphans especially who are british or who may be of other western background who are just have been left in these fetid camps in a place that's now you know an open war zone um what will become of them and i think that's leading to kind of willingness to rethink um you know what we've what we've the caricature that we've ended up with um of their mothers because in the end you know if these children come back uh if we want to bring these children back we are going to have to deal with their mothers and you know there is something at stake in in our own western value system our kind of belief in the rule of law prisoners have some sort of rights that even though i think there is so little public sympathy and i think you know a great deal of that is understandable um there are are, you know, this is the human detritus of conflict and there are many children involved. So I think that is perhaps compelling, you know, a willingness by some to, to reconsider what they think of, of these people. Yeah. And I mean, how did you gain the trust of and gain access to all these women in the book? Because they are from, you know, vastly different places around the world and have very particular experiences. Didn't you, did you find them very willing to tell their story? 
Um, not not everyone, certainly. And, and so I ended up writing about the women whose trust I was able to gain. Um, you know, I have notebooks, you know, and experiences of, you know, several women who in the end, you know, wouldn't meet me again after one short meeting. I wasn't able to establish the kind of rapport and the ongoing relationship I needed for the kind of level of, of intimacy that I wanted for these stories. Um, so I went, you know, I tried traveled to some of these places over and over again. I spent a lot of time in Tunisia. Um, I went to southern Turkey, you know, two trips, several days each, um, so that I was able to. Um, and I think that kind of commitment to kind of showing up again and again and and hearing different parts of the stories that women wanted to tell, not simply, you know, imposing my questions on them. It was just with, with a lot of time um, and a lot of patience. And I think, you know, working through circles of trust, you know, gaining the trust of one intermediary and then the, the intermediary's next intermediary. It was it was quite um it was quite difficult, I would say, because so many of them, you know, were being surveilled by security forces. They didn't want to endanger themselves. Um but in the end I think it's also that's why it took so long. Yeah. Um, well it's the also book has come out now. <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt, but but it is, I mean, the, yeah. the, the closeness of your relationship with these women and, and the amount of time you must have spent with them really shows through because each of their stories is rendered in such detail. There was just one example uh, where you describe a cold shower um, one of the women called Sabira has after she's been intercepted by police and prevented from leaving the UK and you describe the shower she has where she's kind of reflecting on her actions and what could have been and it just demonstrates I guess to me how many long conversations and, and time, how much time you must have spent with each of them to fully grasp and, and tell their story in all the richness that you have. Um, yeah, I mean, I ended up, you know, a, a woman, you know, you mentioned Sabira, a girl like Sabira, um, you know, she was blocked in the end, but that's exactly what gave me the access to her, is, mm. you know, because she hadn't been able to go. Um, and also, you know, I suppose I come from a background that is not dissimilar to many of these women. You know, I'm also of a Middle Eastern Muslim family. I grew up in the West uh, and know what it's like to feel your identity a bit torn, um, to, to feel suspicion and some hostility towards, you know, Western foreign policy as it as it deals with the Middle East or Muslims. So, you know, I think that there was a kind of kinship there. Um, and I could see how their political naivete, their anxieties, their frustrations at being kind of stuck in the middle as a young Muslim woman in the West, you know, I kind of lived that experience. So I think that um, that certainly helped. And just finally, um, what are your thoughts on the latest round of violence in northern Syria and what's happened with the US pulling out and, and the Turkish incursions there? What do you expect might come from this? Well, it's it's taken a situation that was already deeply untenable, um, that no Western government really had a good answer for. You know, what are we going to do with all of our ISIS men, women and children? Um, and I think in a way, perhaps the chaos has, cause, has, you know, forced or may force governments to, you know, come to some kind of solution. Um, all of them, you know, kind, kind of bad options, but, you know, pressing them to take to take a course simply because leaving all of these women and children in limbo um, is so inhumane. I mean, prosecute them, put them in prison for 10 years if you must, but but do that so their children can be repatriated and given a chance. Um, obviously, you know, leaving them uh, to their fate uh, in, in this area of the region, you know, 
it will simply sow seeds for the next conflict. I mean, young children who are five now, but in 10 years will be 15. And all they've known is, you know, some terrible, you know, displaced refugee life in Syria, um, you know, will feel terrible resentment at the circumstances that led them to this. So I think, you know, security people who are not having to deal with re-election realize that they're going to have to um, come to some sort of solution. And I think the chaos is is perhaps, you know, pushing that, you know, into into the horizon in a way that might it might not have otherwise been mm. i've got so many more questions as out of it we are just about out of time thank you so much for joining us today on triple r i recommend your book to anybody um, to get a better sense of the very complicated factors that lead people to joining violent conflicts in the middle east and particularly most recently islamic state um, really appreciate your time it was my pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. Absolute pleasure. Azadeh Moavani's book is called Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. It is out via Scribe. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.